As we continue through Luke, we're going to be looking at together the good and beautiful kingdom that Jesus came to bring. For the last several weeks, we've been seeing Jesus proclaim the kingdom, describe the salvation that he's bringing. And in this next section of Luke, Dr. Luke takes us into not proclamation, but demonstration. We see the kingdom lived out. And so I'm really excited for us to grow in our understanding of the kingdom of Jesus, the goodness and the beauty of it. And like Stephen said, to go along with this kind of six weeks of study on Sundays, there's a personal devotional Take you about 15 minutes each morning, but kind of help these things sink in in a deeper way into your own life. And one cool thing is that it's anchored by saying the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to say together at the end of the service today. But just imagine our whole church taking time each day to pray together, particularly the line, God, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be a powerful thing for us to grow together. So I want to encourage you to pick one up outside or you can get it online as well if you're a digital person. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, verse 22, as you go there, uh, we are going to see Jesus, as he demonstrates his kingdom, start in an interesting place. He starts in the area of religion. How does the kingdom of Jesus differ from, contrast to, stand apart from the traditional way that we think about religion, our faith and our practice. How is it different? How is it better? How is it more beautiful? And that's a really important place for us to start because as I've shared with you before, what you believe about God, the way that you worship, what you worship, the way you live out your faith impacts your life more than you could imagine. It impacts your sense of identity. It impacts your sense of purpose, what's important in life. It impacts your relationships. At a community level, what a community believes about God, what a community worship, right, impacts the the life of the community or the city or the state or the nation, right? So it's fitting that Jesus starts here. What does his kingdom speak to the way that we think about religion. Historian Christopher Dawson said this about just the, the realm of religion in our lives. He said, uh, he was, uh, went to Oxford, was a professor at Harvard, uh, and he said this, religion is the key of history. We cannot understand the inner form of a society unless we understand its religion. We cannot understand its cultural achievements unless we understand the religious beliefs that lie behind them. When we think about history, if we don't look into and understand the religious beliefs of a a nation or a time period, we'll miss uh, understanding what was going on in that particular period. He said, religion is the key to history. So again, it's fitting that we start there. We're gonna be in verse 22. Jesus has just given his opening sermon, which we studied the last six weeks or so, right? He's, uh, he, the, the Lord has sent him, anointed him with the Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, and the favorable year of the Lord. And now we're gonna read what the congregation does in response, starting in verse 22. And all, being the congregants, spoke well of Jesus and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is, this, is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, verse 23, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, 
heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Verse 24, and Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Verse 28, when they, being the congregation, when they heard these words, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove Jesus out of town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, if you got whiplash while we read those eight verses, you're in good company, right? It starts out and it says all the people who heard his opening sermon were like, yeah, we're excited. We're with that guy. And by eight verses later, they were ready to kill him and throw him off of a cliff. What in the world is going on here? What, what's happened? Why are they so offended, and what does this have to do with our lives today? If you'll bear with me for a few moments, I want to take you in to the context that this dialogue happens in, that this scene happens in, and I think you'll see how it uh, makes sense. What, what kind of, what's this story about this widow and this leper, and I don't get any of that. You'll understand what that means, and then you'll understand how this relates to, to you and I today, what God is speaking to us through this story about his Kingdom. So let's start in verse uh, 22, just to set the stage. I've shared with you many times, this takes place, this story takes place in ancient Israel. Uh, Israel as a community at that time was a subject of the Roman Empire. This was in the days where the Roman Empire, when you think Nero or Julius Caesar, right? Their kingdom stretches over most of the kind of known world at their time. And Israel was one of their subjects. Now, they didn't like this. They didn't like being subjected to the Roman Empire. They remembered the good old days, the golden age of Israel, when Israel was not a subject to the Roman Empire, but it was its own nation. It was a prosperous nation. It was a prominent nation. It was a privileged nation. It was a nation that other countries would come to to try and learn from that they would come and they would ask about their way of life and their customs and their economy because they were like, man, this is a great country. That was their golden age. They had incredible kings like King David or King Solomon, right? These leaders that led their nation well. That was the golden age of Israel. And yet they didn't stay kind of in that peak season. They had gone into a long season, generation upon generation of decline. Their nation had declined, even decayed, fallen apart, split up. And the way of life of the people, the community, for years and years, it just felt like things weren't right. They remembered how things were supposed to be. And yet where they were, they felt so far from that. And their understanding of God was that God had chosen them 
and that God had made them a great nation and that it was God's will for them to be prosperous. It was God's will for them to be prominent. It was God's will for the nation of Israel to kind of be the, the light on the, on the hill, the light of the world, the hope of the world, the place that it was right to lead from. That was their understanding. And so in the day when Jesus is speaking, there's this disappointment that people have in God. Has God been faithful to us? Has he forsaken us? Why are we here today underneath Roman rule when we're made for greatness? We're made for, for, for prosperity and prominence, right? And then there's this other thread going on where the prophets of God arose, men like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and they spoke and they prophesied. And they said, no, it's not God being unfaithful is the reason that we're in this predicament. Israel, it's because you've been unfaithful to God. You've worshiped other gods. You've made unholy alliances with other nations. You've oppressed the poor. You've abused uh, the widow and the orphan. Because of your own iniquity, you're in the place that you're in. And so there was this also thread of angst and sadness of have we messed everything up? Is it our fault? Have we sinned with such great a sin? That's where they are. And then there's this third kind of uh, strand of hope that's going on in their culture. And it was this, that God was going to raise up a new king, a king like David or like Solomon or even like Moses of old who was gonna come and he was gonna lead the people and he was gonna restore that which was broken. It was gonna be the great day of the Lord when judgment was going to come to the pagan nations, to the enemies of God, and the nation of Israel would once again be restored, make Israel great again, right? And they would be prosperous, and they would be prominent, and they would be leaders, and everyone would look to them, right? And all the other nations would get their just desserts. That's what they thought. That's what they believed. So there's a disappointment in God. There's a personal angst, and there's this hope that one day God will bring a new king, a Messiah, if you will, who will lead the nation and restore the nation's fortunes. That's what everyone in Jesus' immediate audience, that's what they're thinking about. That's their cultural moment. That's their context. And so when they hear Jesus say, I'm the anointed king, I've come to bring good news to the poor. I've come to bring sight to the blind. I've come to set the oppressed free. I've come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. They're hearing what they're thinking is, here's the Messiah. He has come and he is going to restore our nation, our political entity. It's about to rise to prominence and the other nations are gonna be judged and we're gonna be great again. That's what they're hearing. Now, a second key component is within this hope, there was a belief that this Messiah was going to do signs and wonders, was going to do miracles that was going to usher in, that was going to speed up or hasten this day of the Lord that was to come. And so also alongside Jesus, there are a number of people that said, hey, I'm actually the Messiah. I'm God's chosen one. And I'm gonna do great signs and wonders. If you follow me, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna be like Moses of old with these signs and wonders. There are a number of them. They're called the sign prophets. They're not prophets from God. They're just people kind of seizing the moment, right? So that's going on too. So Jesus now is saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one God sent. And as they see the signs and the wonders, 
that accompany his ministry, they're saying he really is it. This is the one that's come to lead us. So that's why in verse 22, it says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They're like, yeah, he's going to lead us. He's going to restore us. It's finally time. I'm about to get mine, right? That's what they're thinking. And they said, is not this Joseph's son, right? Mary, Joseph, think back to the, the birth story of Jesus, the incarnation. And this is Jesus' hometown. Now, to put this in a little bit of perspective, I'm from Waco, just down the road a little bit. And growing up, the only thing Waco was known for outside of Waco was Dr. Pepper. It's where Dr. Pepper was created. And number two, it was David Koresh and the Branch Davidians and the ATF back in the day, right? Those are the only two ways, whenever I went someplace, those were the only two ways that anyone, if they'd ever heard of Waco, thought of that. But about five years ago, HGTV picked up this little show with Chip and Joe, right? And Fixer Upper blows up. It's set in Waco, and now it's everywhere. I go to the gym, it's on like 24-7. And you'll see people wearing these like Magnolia shirts or, or shiplap, you know, whatever, demo day, all these things. So now, if I go somewhere and I mention Waco, no one thinks about Dr. Pepper. No one thinks about David Crash. They think about, hey, do you know Chip and Joe? So similar thing is going on here, right? Everybody kind of loves the hometown hero that's restored the image of the community. So they're saying, hey, this guy, the Messiah, the one that we've heard about doing these signs and wonders, he's Joseph's son. Joseph, who lives down around the corner. This guy is one of us, a hometown hero, right? And they're probably making up stories about how, how good friends they are with, with, with Joseph. Oh, yeah, we were in the fraternity together back in the day. Or I remember Jesus, when he played t-ball, I knew he was going to be great, right? There's they, that kind of hometown hero feeling. And then in verse 23, Jesus says to them, why he's got, man, everybody's so excited about him. He says this, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus, we've heard about your miracles. We've heard about your power, right? You're the great physician. Start here. Start in your hometown. Start with us. What we heard you did over there, bring it here, because not only is our nation going to be restored, but now our hometown is going to be made great. We're going to be at the top. Now, interesting thing about this, uh, Jesus knows the questions that they're going to ask without them asking them to him. He has this ability to know the thoughts and the intentions and even the questions and the desires of the human heart. We see it here in this story, and we actually see it throughout the Gospels, that over and over and over again, he will come to a person that he hasn't met before, and he will know intimate information about the way they're wired and what they long for and, and what they're made to be. A couple examples. In John chapter 1, Jesus meets a man named Nathaniel. And when Jesus meets Nathaniel, Nathaniel is kind of a, a hardened cynic. He's very critical. Uh, he's very distant. Uh, but Jesus says one thing to him, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were sitting under the tree. And there was something about that phrase right there that moved Nathaniel in an instant from being kind of a hardened cynic to being all in with Jesus as a devoted disciple. Now, you and I were not privy to what happened under that tree. Why was that so significant to Nathaniel? We don't know. But there was something so significant about that 
that when Jesus said, I saw you there, it transformed Nathaniel's life. He was ready to give it all for Jesus to follow him. I thought about what, what was going on under that tree quite a bit. And I wondered if Nathaniel had prayed one of those prayers. God, if you're real, I need you to show me right under the tree behind his house. God, if you're real, I need you. And then Jesus saying, I saw you when you were under the tree. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman who's been in a number of relationships. She's been married and divorced a number of times and is currently in a relationship living with a man who's not her husband, right? Jesus meets her and he shares, he knows about those things. He shares those with her, although he has no reason to know this information. And when he shares it with her, he invites her to stop looking for life in all of these relationships and to receive the gift of life that he wants to give her, the water that never runs dry. And she moves all of a sudden from, I don't know Jesus, to, wow, Jesus is amazing. And she goes and she leads her whole town to come to know Jesus. Right? This happens over and over and over again. In fact, in John chapter 2, the scripture says about Jesus, this was so prolific in his ministry. John chapter 2, verse uh, 23 and 24, it says this. Now, when he, being Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, so he was doing miracles. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Note this, I highlighted it for you. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about a man. For he himself knew what was in man. So this was so commonplace, it just happened prolifically throughout his life and ministry. And you're probably asking me, Zach, right, he's God. He knows everything. Why are you belaboring this point? Good question. What I want to point out to you is that I believe that Jesus' ability to know the secret things of people's hearts, the questions that they're holding before they even articulate it, is not a function of his divine nature, but it's a fruit of his relationship with the Holy Spirit. I believe that out of cultivating the relationship that he had with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was the one who was giving him this insight, this revelation about people when he came in contact with them. Why do I believe that? Because what we see in scripture is that this ability, this gift is not limited to Jesus but it actually becomes a ministry of the church of Jesus. It becomes something once Jesus has ascended to the Father, it becomes a mark on the people of God that they would have a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of that would be that God would give the people of God insight about other people to be able to minister to them and speak the heart of the Lord to them. Look in your Bibles in 1 Corinthians 14. We see the Apostle Paul talking about this practice within the church. And he said this in verse 24. He said, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So Paul's describing when the church is together, think about like a life group, and you're worshiping. If everyone begins to 
prophesy, this gift of prophecy that the Holy Spirit gives. As the community begins to practice this, if an outsider or an unbeliever comes in and there are these words that are being shared, right? The outsider, the unbeliever is going to hear the words and there's going to be something about them. These words, that's like the secrets of their heart are revealed. Not to be exposed in a bad way. No, this results in worship. This results in declaring the presence of God is here. So this is not exposing the junk in people's lives, but it's calling out the treasure and it's revealing to them the heart of the Lord, right? We've been practicing this as a community over the last uh, several weeks. We are a church that believes in the power and the goodness and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe therefore today, right? We believe it's a call on the church. We believe God's spirit fills And so we want to be faithful, though we're not perfect, we're growing. We want to be faithful to practice the power, right? We want to step into and say, hey, this is what the word of God says. We want to grow in this. And so you'll see at the end of the services, we'll share words, uh, impressions, visions, even if you will, that our prophetic team uh, has, we have a prayer time that they've shared, right? And we've been sharing those, believing that God has things for people in our church. And it's been amazing to see the fruit of this over the last several weeks. One week, there was a word about forgiveness that was given, a special grace to forgive. And a a marriage that was struggling in the area of forgiveness found breakthrough. Another word was given about a male math teacher with knee pain. It's very specific. And we had a male math teacher with knee pain and we prayed for him. He was like, wow, it feels like there's fire in my knee, right? And he had a running injury that he couldn't test on the spot. But he was like, man, something is happening within me. The Lord wanted to minister to him. Another person, uh, there was a a word about uh, someone in an orange shirt that had hip pain that needed healing, that God wanted to minister to them. And last week they came up to me. It was actually a couple Male and female, both wearing a bright orange shirt. I don't think there's anyone with a bright orange shirt today, right? They're both wearing a bright orange shirt. And get it, that week she had had to quit her job because of hip pain from being pregnant. And they were like, wow, uh, I guess this is us. And they were so encouraged that the Lord would speak that way, right? This is to be a ministry of the church, and we want to pursue this because it's what Jesus has for us. So I want you to see that, and we'll kind of go back. I realize that was a little bit of a bunny trail, but an important one. So Jesus is speaking these things, and then he goes in to tell these random stories about uh, Elijah and Elijah and widows and lepers. Let's, Let's dive into these. And why did these stories infuriate the people so much? So he starts out after he says, no doubt you'll tell me to start here. No doubt you'll tell me, hey, it's time for you to lead us back to prosperity. Let me tell you a story. First story is about Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. That in that day, Israel uh, was in great decline, was in spiritual decay. They were in a low point in their history. So low that there was a famine that had come on the land. It lasted three and a half years. And the prophet Elijah was ministering in that day. Uh, He was the man of God and he was ministering the word of the Lord. And God led Elijah in the midst of the famine to a widow. Now, the widow was not an Israelite. The widow was an outsider. The widow was a foreigner. The widow was someone that a good Israelite would have thought was so far gone from God. 
In fact, they believed they called them Gentiles, and they believed that Gentiles were fuel for the fires of hell. That was their purpose, right? They were the enemies of God. And before you judge them, we all have people that we think are the real enemies of God, right? Well, Elijah doesn't go to the Israelite widow. God sends Elijah to the foreigner, to the Gentile, to the enemy of God widow. And Elijah goes and he shares a word with her. And the woman, surprise, surprise, responds in faith. While the people of God are unbelieving and in decay, here's a foreigner, an outsider, someone that you wouldn't think would be the hero of the story. There's the response of faith. And she is the one that experiences the salvation and the provision of God. She's the hero of the story. Second story that Jesus tells is about Elisha. So now if you're new to these guys, Elijah is older. Elisha is his protege, is his pupil, right? The difference is Ja versus Sha, okay? Elijah, first story. Elisha, second story. So Elisha uh, is ministering shortly after the period of Elijah. And again, Israel is in great decline. And a leper, a foreign leper, a Syrian, comes to him. Now, in their day, they viewed leprosy as a curse from God. If you had leprosy, you had done some great sin, and God himself had cursed you with leprosy, right? Well, there are many lepers in Israel, right? But it's a foreign leper who comes to Elisha with a heart of faith. And he comes to Elisha, and, he, and Elisha ministers to him. Gives him the word of the Lord, said, if you'll go to the river and wash seven times, you'll be healed. So Naaman, this leper, this foreigner, the one that you thought was so far gone from God, responds in faith and goes and is washed in the water and is cleansed and is healed. He experiences the saving power of God. He's the hero of the story. Now, these two stories infuriate the people that are there for what they imply, right? that it's Israel who's in decline, that it's the foreigner who God is saving, that it's the outsider, that it's the, the one that you wouldn't think would be there. And he, Jesus is highlighting their enemies and saying God is for their enemies. And that their vision of kind of uh, economic and national political prosperity, rule and restoration, maybe God's kingdom can be fit into that little box. Let me bring it to present day just to help us connect with why it's made them so mad. Think back to the elections that we had in 2016. Our nation was so angry, so divided, so tense, so, so stressed, right? And we got two big parties, the Democrats on one side, the Republicans on the other, and both parties hate each other. Both parties think the other party is the enemy of God, right? So just imagine, we'll put up the Democratic National Convention, and just so you know, we're an equal opportunity offender. I'm coming after Republicans next. <laughs> Democrat National Convention, right? Everybody's with Hillary. I'm with her, except for the Bernie Sanders people, but you get the idea. If, and they've got the man of God on the stage saying this is a revival. We are God's instrument. We are moving forward with the kingdom. It's, you know, this is, this is God, Right? If Jesus had walked in to the Democratic National Convention, walked on stage, and instead of telling stories about Democrats being the heroes or Hillary being the hero, if he highlighted Trump and said Trump was the hero, that Trump was the man of God, that Trump was the one that was going to receive the grace of God or some other Republican, oh, do you know how mad 
people would have gotten? Gotten really mad. Flip the, flip the script. Go to the Trump rally. Same thing happens. If Jesus shows up, right, there's, the, there's all these uh, pastors there. This is God's will. Trump is God's man. If Jesus showed up and he told a story where Hillary was the hero, oh my goodness, I think they would have run him out of town faster than these guys here in the Bible. They've been so upset. I, I read that one Trump supporter, when their news came out about Trump with Russia, he said, look, if Jesus Christ himself got down off the cross and told me that Donald Trump was in partnership with Russia, I would tell Jesus, go check your facts. Wow, right? So you get the idea. This stuff makes people really, really mad. Or let's bring it into last week at the student walkout over gun violence, right? If Jesus showed up there, and honored and highlighted members of the NRA. Oh man, these people against gun violence would suddenly want to get guns and take them out. <laughs> Other side, NRA. If Jesus shows up at an NRA rally and highlights these high schoolers that are moving for gun control, oh man, you better believe people are coming after him, right? So when we read this, don't put this as far away. Oh, look at those foolish uh, Israelites. No, guys, this is us. This is us. We can get so locked into our deal, our kingdom, our country, our party, our business deal, our, our agenda, right, that we can miss God. When Jesus is sharing these stories with them, he's not sharing them to write them off. You wicked sinners, tells his story, I'm done with you. No, that's not the tone of his voice. He's sharing these stories to invite them in. Jesus has said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And because these people were holding on so tightly to the thing that they thought was, man, this is the kingdom of God. And they were holding on so tightly that they missed God himself standing before them and inviting them in. I wonder here in our room, myself included, what are the things that we're holding on to so tightly that it keeps us missing God as God invites us into something better and more beautiful? That's why they get so mad. That's why they want to cast him out. That's why they want to kill him. So with that as a, a backdrop, now we understand the story. We can begin to understand how is this good and beautiful kingdom differ from traditional religion. The first thing that I want you to note is that traditional religion, the way that we uh, growing up where it's thought about morality and doing the right thing and showing up to church or showing up to the synagogue or showing up to the mosque, whatever, whatever your, your background that you come from, right? All of those things are focused on outward appearance, right? These Jews, they were in the synagogue. They were at church. They knew their Bibles. They prayed. They were trying to obey all the rules, right? And though they had the outward appearance, what was in their hearts was far from God. And in the stories, it's the leper and the widow who were from the place that was just kind of no one, from no one wants God there. They were the ones that had the inward reality of faith. They had the hearts of faith. And what we see in the kingdom of Jesus is that where traditional religion values outward appearance, 
The good and beautiful kingdom of Jesus values inward reality, values what's in the heart, what's right here, not necessarily the way you dress, who you voted for, do you eat at Chick-fil-A, do you wear this or wear that? No, Jesus is looking at the heart. The Bible says that, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Jesus is after inward reality. Uh, traditional religion brings behavior modification. Here are the rules, go obey them, right? But it doesn't change the heart. The gospel, because it addresses the heart, actually brings transformation, not behavior modification. It makes people new. It brings them to life. Second thing, traditional religion fosters pride. Look at us. We're the ones that obey God. We're the ones that are at the synagogue. We're the ones that are, uh, know the Bible. We're the ones, look at us, and then look at our enemies. Look at these people out here, right? We're the inside crew. They're the outside crew. Look at us. Everyone should be like us, right? Fosters pride. The gospel of the kingdom, the good and beautiful kingdom, cultivates humility. You realize the widow and the leper in that story had no claims on the grace of God. They knew it wasn't their own goodness. They knew it wasn't what they had done. They knew they had just received the grace of God, right? The gospel teaches us that our right standing or relationship with God is not based off what we've done, but based off what he's done. It's based off grace and that we stand in grace. And what that means is that makes us a humble people because we don't have the ability to look down upon anyone because we realize how much we need and needed the grace of God, and we'll continue to need the grace of God. So it cultivates humility. Traditional religion has empty talk. There's a lot of words. There's a lot of rituals. There was a lot of customs and whatnot, but there was no spiritual power. The gospel of the kingdom, the good and beautiful kingdom, has spiritual power to bring new life to heal, to restore. We're gonna read several stories of healing and restoration over the next several weeks as we study, right? It has real power to make new. One of the scriptures that I love to think about is that we can hold to a form of godliness but lack its power or deny its power. But the gospel of Jesus is not about talk. It is about the power and the presence and the goodness of God at work as Jesus is proclaimed. Traditional religion is defensive at critique, right? Jesus critiques them. God himself critiques them. And they respond by wanting to kill God. Wow, that's just this defensive posture, right? Traditional religion, man, we're right because this is our identity and this is what we do and, and we're the right side. We're on the right side of history. How dare you, you know, critique us, even if you're God. The gospel, because we know that it's by grace and it's not through what you or I did, it makes us humble. It makes us open to critique. It makes us open to people giving feedback. Just an aside, if, if your vision of God never disagrees with you, I would uh, charge that you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something you've created, right? Every single one of us myself included, right? There are areas in all of our lives that Jesus is coming, trying to rattle our cage a little bit, not to write us off, but to bring us in. And if you're kind of wrapped up in traditional religion, you're not gonna be responsive to that. You're gonna miss Jesus. 
But if you're rooted in the gospel, then your heart's open and you realize your need and you're receptive to him and you're receptive to others, giving you feedback, helping you grow. That's just the start of seeing the good and beautiful kingdom. And we see it here in the area of religion. But I want you to know it impacts all of life. I want to challenge you this week to think about how might the good and beautiful kingdom impact family? How might it impact relationships? How might it impact school? How might it impact your workplace? How might it impact your neighborhood? How is it better and more beautiful than the kingdoms of this world? And let our hearts be moved by the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. Secondly, I want to lead us as we close. We're going to do this every week as we close in this series of saying the Lord's Prayer together. There's this key line in there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to lead you in just proclaiming this again, that we want to be kingdom people, that we want Jesus' kingdom and not our own. God, let your kingdom come and your will be done. Uh, Lastly, before we do that, I want to share with you a few uh, words that our prophetic team would like to share of specific people we believe God wants to minister to today, and we'll have our prayer and perfecting. In fact, if you guys could come on forward, we'll have them available after the service for these words or anything else that you might uh, need prayer or ministry for. Uh, number one, uh, there, there are people here that feel like there's an umbrella over them and their relationship with God that's keeping them from receiving the love and the grace of God. There's just something that's blocking it. We believe the Lord wants to remove that umbrella today. So if that's you, I want to invite you to come forward uh, here in a few moments. A second, there's someone here named Nikita. God wants you to know that you're special and that you're loved. Number three, that God wants to uh, heal someone or minister to someone with Bell's palsy uh, sickness. And then the, the fourth one uh, is if you're here today and you don't know Jesus. We're talking about the kingdom. We're talking about following Jesus, being made new. And you're like, man, I've been to church. I kind of know a little bit of the Bible, maybe, uh, but I don't have what you're talking about. I don't have that inward reality. I've never come to a point where I said, it's no longer my kingdom, but Jesus, it's your kingdom. It's not by my might, but it's by your grace. I need to be made new. If that's you, we want to invite you to receive Jesus today. We want to invite you to receive the good and beautiful kingdom and put your trust in him and begin to follow him and let him make you new. So if that's you, we'd love for you to come forward after the service is over and we'd love to minister to you and help you in that. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to say the Lord's Prayer together as we close a declaration over our week. So if you'll say with me, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Such a powerful prayer. I pray that that sends you into your week, carrying the kingdom, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to love your neighbor as yourself. You are dismissed. God bless you. If you would like prayer or ministry, you can come forward. We'll be here for a while.